There are many ways people listen to Vision, including in cars through the Vision app. The Vision app is compatible with Apple CarPlay and Android Auto. So if you have mobile coverage, you can stream any of Vision's live radio channels in crystal clear quality and enjoy a growing range of on-demand podcasts all on the go. There are other ways to connect your phone to your vehicle speakers too. You can see detailed instructions when you Google ways to listen to Vision. However and wherever you listen to Vision, you can be sure that the announcers, programs and music will help you look to God daily. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. If you've been watching the news, you will have seen all sorts of reports talking about the unfolding issues that face the nation of Ukraine and the potential for a Russian invasion. In fact, as I understand it, there's already sort of a low-level war already that's going on in Ukraine. Well, to talk through this issue and some other very important issues that are facing the whole world, it's always good to be able to welcome back to 2020 Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. Hello, Elizabeth. Welcome back. Hello, Neil. Thanks for having me back again. Elizabeth, I always appreciate your insights into these issues that are going on because it does certainly appear that when we start to see these things on our television screens, we're watching the evening news, we're hearing all sorts of reports on things, and I'm talking about uh, Europe and and we'll, we'll certainly be talking about Nigeria too, but there is a sense, isn't there, that in the secular media there is a tendency to ignore or uh, or uh, or somehow or other uh, sideline the fact that there are religious undertones to many of the stories that we see. Yes, you tend to find that the media doesn't really have a great deal of understanding of the religious undertones. Uh, media seems to be dominated by a, a left-wing dialogue <clears throat> that's often... Uh, quite irreligious, sometimes even anti-religious. So often uh, religious issues are either uh, ignored or misrepresented. The other thing I'm discovering is that there's a very keen, or oh, I don't even know if it's to the degree it's it's deliberate, but there there seems to be uh, um, that the media seems to represent the official line that comes from. Uh, Western governments, uh, not necessarily our own government, but <clears throat> maybe the uh, the American or European governments in regards to Ukraine, rather than really run an ind- independent investigation into what's going on. So all you're seeing is a is a retelling of what might be um, propaganda and uh, political interests being expressed. Well, for some of us, here we are in Australia and Ukraine seems like a long way away on the other side of the world. And uh, it's almost like, you know, we're watching a movie and what might Russia's manoeuvring do uh, if they were to invade Ukraine. But uh, let's come back to some very, very simple, straightforward ideas. Is Ukraine at this point close to war, uh, resisting a Russian invasion? Look, I think they are close to war. It's very much a civil war. I I actually don't know that Russia is doing half as much as what the media is suggesting and what Europe and America is suggesting that they are doing. They don't need to. What's happening in eastern Ukraine is the consequence of what happened in Kiev. And anyone uh, with an understanding, even just of the geography 
of Ukraine would know that what happened in Kiev earlier this year would result in the consequences that we're seeing now. Uh, Ukraine is a profoundly divided country geographically. The northeast is uh, ethnic Ukrainian, uh, speaks Ukrainian, worships in Ukrainian Orthodox churches, and the the, the south and the um, the east, rather the northwest is Ukrainian. The southeast is Russian, ethnic Russian. They are Russian speakers. They are ethnic Russians, and they their relatives live you know across that expanse from eastern Ukraine into Russia. All their business goes into Russia and. And uh, they're integrally linked. I, I have said to someone else, um, Ukraine is like Russia's Siamese twin, whereas Germany and the EU, they, they just are people who live further down the road. You know, it's not quite the same. And what happened in Kiev was actually uh, a very deliberate effort by uh, mostly Germany and U- European Union forces, but led by Germany, to really pull, Ukra- uh, pull Kiev into the into the European orbit. The deal they offered was not as good as the deal that they already as that Ukraine already had with Russia. Uh, and which shouldn't surprise anybody because uh, Europe is just is covered in austerity uh, measures at the moment. I mean they, they haven't got the money to offer Ukraine uh, any great deals. And the government uh, made a call and said, no, we'll stick with the uh, the Russian deal, thank you very much. And protests erupted, and the rest is history. And it should have stayed there, but it's actually been uh, been used uh, almost as a proxy war, and um, I think it's absolutely appalling. Now, if we were digging deeper into the political climate within Ukraine, and I guess this even dates way back further than Kiev, the rise of a party called the Svoboda Party, a neo-Nazi party bringing together some paramilitary groups now that have been planning an armed revolution in Ukraine for years. That's right. Now, this is uh, something that's not being talked about uh, uh, people who are the whole thing about what happened in Kiev is it was a regime change operation. Kiev had a democratically elected government. They had elections in 2010. In fact, Svoboda, the uh, neo-Nazi party, used to be called the National Socialist Party of Ukraine. They changed their name to Freedom Party, uh, Svoboda. Um, they won 10% of that vote. They hold something like 30 seats in Parliament, and. Um, uh, Yanukovych was elected as the president. They had fr- there was the elections were described as free and fair, and that was the result. So what happens a few years down the track is uh, there are some people who don't like some policy, and they start protesting, and the neo-Nazi groups move in and literally hijack the protest. Or, or they don't hijack it; they really come in to lend their muscle. Uh, they lend their muscle. In fact. Let me tell you, let me paint a picture to help you understand what happened in Kiev because I think this might help our listeners understand what's happened. Now, last year we had elections here in Australia and the Labor Party was voted out and the Liberals were voted in and, and we all get on with it. Now the Liberal Party uh, introduces some policies that people, some people don't like. So just say the Labor voters go out and protest in the streets 
against the Liberal Party's, um, you know, turn back the boats policy. So, so maybe. Well, you know, that's fine. We report it. We talk about it. But what happens next? What happens if a whole lot of neo-Nazi groups or Marxist groups or, or bikey groups, other people who have interests in, in getting rid of the Liberal government, if they come into these protests and lend their muscle to the protests so that Brisbane and Canberra and other cities end up looking like Kiev looked like at the beginning of the year, a total burned-out war zone, right? They're, they're, these are violent groups, groups of thugs. And they are able to exert so much pressure that the, uh, that the government falls. Oh, and what, what, the other thing that's happened, you see, is uh, not only have these thugs come in and supported those who are protesting against the government, but foreign powers get involved. So in an Australian situation, just say, right, the Labor Party voters are protesting, the bikies come in and lend muscle, and then the governments of Indonesia and China, say, for example, say, look, if you can overthrow that government in our interests, we'll back you. So now there's money and there's all sorts of uh, things happening that enable the pressure to build until the government falls and a new government is installed. Now, I think Australians would understand that everyone who voted for the Liberal Party would have every right to feel both aggrieved and deeply concerned. And that's what's happened in Ukraine. And the thing that makes it more uh, drastic in Ukraine is that the voters are not sort of spread fairly evenly across the country as they are in Australia. You have everyone voting one way in the West and everyone voting another way in the East. So to overthrow the government, an elected government, and put in a government, they, uh, the government that the Americans chose, actually, uh, has disenfranchised everyone in eastern Ukraine and they are angry and they are afraid because the neo-Nazi groups are profoundly not just anti-Semitic but anti-Russian as well. Let's talk about the rise in anti-Semitism because uh, as I understand it, as we look back in history, uh, back to World War II, in Ukraine itself, more than 1.7 million Jews were shot in Ukraine. So when we start to see of uh, rising anti-Semitic groups, neo-Nazi groups, that does send a little bit of a shiver, doesn't it? Uh, yes, uh, Israel has already been uh, re uh, encouraging Jews to leave Ukraine and Ukrainian Jews have been leaving. They've been appealing for help from their uh, uh, embassies to get out of Ukraine. It is now dangerous for them. And yet I actually read uh, somewhere uh, some months ago a, a Jew in Kiev saying, yes, it's dangerous. Uh, there have been Jews bashed in the streets. There have been synagogues graffitied, and one was uh, hit with Molotov cocktails. But he said, I actually think it's more dangerous now to be an ethnic Russian than it is to be a Jew. So this whole concept that is dangerous now for ethnic Russians is real. It is real. Um, and, you know, the... the um, History of anti-Semitism does go back a long way, and uh, Svoboda has um, is very open about its anti-Semitism. In fact, their hero, uh, who they rally round, uh, a, a fellow by the name of Bandera, who was a leader uh, in the uh, during the World War II era, he allied himself with the Nazis 
and his followers were the ones who were responsible for massacres of Jews. He is now that he is sort of like the hero of the Svoboda movement, and the the protesters in Kiev actually have had uh, candlelight vigils for Bandera. So no one can say that the anti-Semitism isn't there. I'm flabbergasted when I read reports in Time magazine and and uh, CNN saying there's no evidence of um, of anti-Semitism. Well, on my blog, on the postings I've written, I've de- I've got pictures of the evidence of anti-Semitism in those rallies in uh, in Kiev. So you have this rise of neo-Nazis, and with that, a rise in anti-Semitism in Europe in general. A rise towards Islamization. We haven't talked about that so much. But with the particular contention that there is this tension between the East and the West of Ukraine, as you're talking about, where does that leave Christians who are in Ukraine at this time? Well, personally, this is what worries me greatly. I think that Christians are in a far more dangerous situation than they uh, realise, especially Protestants and Evangelicals, um, because... They're in this situation now where they've got a, a government that is not legitimate. Uh, it is not an elected government. It is not legitimate. Uh, it's basically the government that the Americans decided to put in. It's not the one that the Europeans wanted. They wanted Klitschko as president, um, or as prime minister, rather, and the Americans wanted Yats and York, and they got what they wanted. And this is not a legitimate government. One of the, fir- the first laws they passed on the day that they formed for their first sitting, the first laws they passed was to ban the use of, uh, of Russian as an official language and to strike down the law that makes, um, uh, makes it illegal to glorify uh, the Nazis. So they struck down those two laws and there was such an out- outcry uh, internationally that they had to renege. But that just goes to show sort of where they're at. Now, the thing is, Christians should not be standing party with neo-Nazi groups. Um, They need to realise that the neo-Nazi groups might want to stand with them, but they have their own agendas. And a lot of those agendas are things that Christians should not have anything to do with. And uh, there's a real danger that the situation could be very much like it was in Germany during the Nazi era, where you have neo-Nazis uh, uh, sort of embracing the church and saying, we're going to turn this into a, uh, a, you know, a Christian country, a Ukrainian Christian country. So it supports the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but at the same time it wants to kill Jews and Russians. So uh, Christians must stand against that. They can't stand with that. And that's going to put them ultimately in a very difficult place. And that difficult place is coming because having now adopted the um, uh, deals with Germany and with Europe, uh, they're having to uh, bring in austerity measures, which means that Ukraine is staring down the barrel of great, serious financial uh, hardship and a serious drop in, uh, in lifestyle. Gas is going up by 50%. Pensions are going down by 50%. And the neo-Nazis, I promise you, they will blame the Jews and the Christians who are still, well, the Protestants and Russians who are still hanging around Kiev, which makes it very dangerous for the present 
Prime Minister and President. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest and this is not the only issue we'll talk about this hour. In fact, uh, stay with us, Elizabeth. We'll come back and talk again uh, some more in just a short while. You will recall that just before dawn, the 14th of April, 300 schoolgirls were rounded up at a boarding school in northern Nigeria and armed men from the fringe Islamic group called Boko Haram torched the school and abducted the girls, taking them to the rebels' camp that was deep in the bush. The leader of Boko Haram declared in a video that God had told him to sell the girls into slavery. Certainly good to have you along with us today on 2020. It's Neil Johnson with you. We're talking through a bunch of very important issues with Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. We've focused a little on what's going on in Ukraine, talking about Russia, talking about the rise of neo-Nazism in Ukraine and ultranationalism. Turning our attention now to what's been going on in the nation of Nigeria, where 300 schoolgirls were rounded up at a boarding school in northern Nigeria and they have been abducted by a group called Boko Haram who torched the school. They've abducted the girls and the threat is to sell them into slavery. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, when we start to hear these sorts of things, and this is not new, we've been talking about this uh, for some weeks now, the secular media, mainstream media seems to have picked up on it and seems to have recognised that Boko Haram certainly is a threat, but uh, you seem to think that this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to girls being abducted by Islamic groups. Oh, it definitely is, and I think that... uh, uh I'm really, really pleased that the media has uh, picked up on on what's happened in Nigeria. But the reason why it has is because in Nigeria, in southern Nigeria, you know, the Christians are actually quite strong and and quite wealthy and quite powerful. And so Christian women, predominantly in the south, have they've jumped on the bandwagon for these poor grieving parents up in the north northeast. And they've created Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts and they've got out and marched in the streets and they've made uh, a lot of noise with their, with their campaign, Bring Back Our Girls. And it's really captured the imagination, particularly because so many girls were abducted at once. It's, it's sensational. And, um, but pre- particularly because these uh, uh, more powerful women have been able to raise the profile. If you go to countries like Egypt, in Pakistan, uh, many hundreds of girls disappear every year. Uh, a report has just come out in Pakistan, just published in April at, um, by the Movement for Peace and Solidarity in Pakistan. They estimate that 700 Christian girls are kidnapped, forcibly converted and forcibly married to Muslim men every year. 700 every year. And they admit that's the tip of the iceberg because they're the cases that get to court. Most cases don't actually make it to court and many don't even get reported because the parents are, you know, under such threat to their lives. And, you know, and the figures are even greater in Egypt. Uh, It's just that they haven't been collated as clearly as there are figures in Pakistan. And it's been going on in Egypt especially for a long, long time. In fact, there are even rumours that the uh, kidnapping gangs in Egypt are being paid uh, reward money from uh, various uh, people in Saudi Arabia for the Christian girls that they kidnap and uh, marry off to these Muslim men. So we're talking many thousands of girls every year 
uh, suffer this fate. Elizabeth, in, in Egypt and Pakistan, yep. you know, the Christian communities are impoverished and they don't have access to such uh, you know, powerful movements to get their, their causes known. Of course, there are those that say this is happening at the extremist end of Islam. And I guess you'd have to say this is extreme. But is there a sense in which the mainstream of Islam endorses this extremism? Well, I'd say that many mainstream Muslims are absolutely complicit in it. I mean, even the situation in Nigeria, Borno State is under emergency rule. It's under military rule. It's swarming with military. How did this happen? In fact, just um, just a week ago, on, on Monday the 5th of May, so not, not even a week ago, a few days ago, uh, eight more girls were kidnapped by Boko Haram right on the edge of the forest where Boko Haram uh, was already known to have its base in uh, in Borno. The girls that were originally kidnapped, the the 200, were taken into the, into the Sambisa forest, and many have already been trafficked. People have seen them being moved across the border into Cameroon. So where was the security on Monday the 5th of April when Boko Haram attacked a village right on the edge of the forest near the border with Cameroon? Where is the military? Where is the security? I would say that there is probably corruption and complicity going very, very deep. The trafficking rings, I see, I regard what's happening in Pakistan and Egypt as human trafficking across religious lines. And this could only happen to this scale if the police and the courts and local officials were complicit in it and they allowed it to happen. And these people are not terrorists. They're not running around with guns. They are judges. They are policemen. They are soldiers. They are lawyers. They are uh, local local officials. And they are complicit in the uh, the trafficking of Christian girls. Uh, let's focus on that and uh, and just reflect for a moment. Christian girls. These are girls from a Christian village. They were at a Christian boarding school. Uh, when we hear of groups like Boko Haram and the protest that they have against Western education and the oppression of women. Uh, This is a a significant thing when we talk about the way Islam uh, treats those who are infidels, those who are not Islamic. Is there an attack specifically going against Christians? Uh, Yes, and within the situation in Nigeria... Uh, I'd suggest that the um, uh, Boko Haram has also attacked madrasas. They killed not just Christians but Muslims as well. Uh, they just a week before, or a few weeks before the um, the Christian girls were kidnapped from Chibuk. At the end of February, they broke into a boarding house at a school and slit the throats of 59 boys. And at that time, they rounded up the girls and told them to abandon their education and go and get married instead, like good Muslim girls should. Now, the reason why they generally target the Christians uh, is because it causes less problems for them. You know, if, you t- if they target Muslims, then Muslims get upset. But if they target Christians, they can usually get away with it. And uh, n- pretty well no one rises to their defence, which is an absolute shame and disgrace. Uh, the reason why people have jumped up and down about the latest attacks 
is, as I said, because women in southern Nigeria who, who have uh, high education, they're tech-savvy, they're wealthy, they're well-connected right up to the First Lady herself, uh, they have been able to mobilize this cause. But uh, generally speaking, attacking Christians is a soft target. We'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Elizabeth Kendall is our guest, religious liberty analyst. We're talking about Nigeria. We're talking about the abduction of those 300 schoolgirls and talking about that as just the tip of the iceberg. Elizabeth, stay with us because I want to talk to you about the importance of literacy and education for girls because it does seem to be that the organisation Boko Haram and it does seem to be fairly mainstream in Islamic countries uh, that young girls are denied an education and uh, literacy is one of those things that's reserved for the boys. It's Neil with you on 2020. Our special guest this hour is Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst. We are talking through the issue of those 300 schoolgirls who were rounded up at a boarding school in northern Nigeria abducted by a group called Boko Haram, who torched the school, abducted the girls, and the threat is to sell these girls into slavery. Uh, Elizabeth, when we hear these sorts of stories, uh, we churn on the inside. Uh, Something happens. But there is something that does appear to be common uh, throughout the Islamic world, and that is the idea of keeping girls illiterate, uh, denying them an education. In fact, just yesterday here on Vision, a conversation with Anthony Lamuel from the Pakistan Bible Society, they've got a campaign to increase the literacy of girls. And it really looked like a drop in the bucket uh, with the campaign that they were running because the problem is so widespread and it does seem to be so difficult to get on top of. Uh, yes, it's particularly uh, an issue with the what we call the Salafi Muslims, uh, and the and the super fundamentalist Wahhabi Muslims, uh, Salafi Muslims uh, believe that you have to uh, really emulate the Prophet himself, which is why it sort of uh, it tends to recreate this seventh uh, century culture, which is quite barbaric and and backward. But the thing about that is, it's very much a fundamentalist Islam. Uh, it's not a liberal Islam. It's not, a, um, it's not an offshoot of Islam. This is fundamentalist Islam. You know, we say we should follow Jesus Christ. We should emulate Jesus Christ. And that produces a, a certain sort of Christian. Well, these Salafi Muslims are Muslims who say they should emulate Muhammad and they should uh, follow him. And that produces a certain sort of Muslim. And Muhammad took not only multiple wives, but he also took women as war booty, and he also took women as slaves. And in the Quran, he actually says that it's um, permissible for Muslims to have sexual relations with any woman that their right hand possesses. So if she is his possession because she is a slave or because she is booty, then uh, he may have sexual relations with her. So it's they're only emulating their prophet, which is why it's a mistake when uh, some people say this has got nothing to do with Islam. In fact, Andrew Bolt was very brave uh, just earlier this week and he took, uh, in his column, he took the task Walid Ali, who basically denied that this had anything to do with Islam at all, but it most certainly does. 
I read that article. Uh, Walid Ali, He's uh, it's not the first time we've discussed him on 2020. Uh, there does certainly seem to be an Australian uh, presence, uh, and, of course, he'd be considered a moderate Muslim, but uh, certainly trotted out in so many different uh, upfront uh, places to uh, talk about that there is no threat at all in Australian society to uh, to Australians because of the rise of Islam. There is a sense, isn't there, that uh, in some sense, as uh, Andrew Bolt was saying, it's like the wool's being pulled over Australians' eyes as to just how serious the threat is, not only uh, really not perhaps too much in Australia, but certainly in these nations around the world where Islam is very strong. Well, it's, it's to do with Islam being a majority in the community. So once, once there's this whole concept in the Quran of what they call abrogation. It's to do with how you interpret the Quran, because the Quran is full of contradictory orders. So what uh, Islamic scholars uh, have done, and there's a whole you know uh, area of scholarship devoted to studying this whole issue of what verses are uh, abrogate others. Uh, some people say that the later verses always abrogate the earlier verses. Another school says that some verses were given at a time when Islam was in a minority and they were persecuted and repressed. Therefore, those verses apply to all Muslims who are in a minority and are persecuted and oppressed. Verses like, there is no compulsion in religion. And then when Islam became strong and was able to make itself a majority and was able to rule, different verses uh, came to be. And those are the verses that apply to majority populations. And the thing is that we're seeing this happen not just in uh, Nigeria and Pakistan and Egypt, but even in communities in, say, the UK. So the UK is having problems with what they call, have called for a long time, Asian trafficking rings. Uh, in fact, the, the whole issue of the grooming of uh, young, white, vulnerable girls by mostly Pakistani Muslim men in, in, in sex gangs, that was, went unreported and undealt with for years. And the police are now confessing that it was because they were afraid of being labelled racist. And the whole race-religion issue made it too much of a hot potato. So during all that time, girls were continuing to be sexually trafficked by these Muslim sex gangs. And a, a Gatestone Institute put out, out, out a report last year uh, saying there was, I think, something like a 1,000 sexual assaults in London cabs in 2013, or maybe it was 2012, and they were virtually all attacks by Muslim men against white Christian women. And um, so these issues, these issues are not just happening in Islamic countries. They're happening in areas where Muslims have started to feel that they are, have a strong enough presence to think that they can get, get away with these things. And um, I think we ignore these issues at our peril. Let's talk continuing on about uh, education for girls uh, around the world. There is a contrast, isn't there? The way that Christianity treats the idea of literacy and education for both men and women, for girls and boys, that does seem to be very stark in its contrast uh, with where Islam wants to go with ed education for uh, for young girls. 
Yes, I think um, people underestimate this. A lot of it has to do, there's a difference actually between Sunni and Shia Islam. Uh, Shia Islam has a, a higher view of women to some degree in that it, it uh, celebrates a number of its female uh, martyrs who, uh, who were heroes uh, in the 7th century at the time of the great split between the Sunnis and the Shias. And uh, you'll often find that women in Shia communities um, are, get, are educated and hold down jobs and, and uh, things are better for them. The uh, Sunni community uh, has never had uh, that sort of view to, uh, regarding women. It's always been very much a, a, um, a might is right, more of a law of the jungle type of, um, type of worldview. Uh, and that's the, that's the Sunni political worldview too. They, uh, they, they look for a strong man to keep order in the community. That's how, it's, that's how it's always worked. That's where the two religious sects sort of parted ways. So it's, it's a particular problem amongst the Sunnis and it's a particular problem today as uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, uh, fundamentalist Islam is spread um, throughout the world, basically from Saudi Arabia. So we're seeing this uh, radicalization of Muslims, this return to the to the Salafi sort of thinking, the seventh uh, century thinking uh, in communities uh, from you know Indonesia right through to right through the Philippines and and uh, in Muslim communities all over the world, Africa and everywhere. We're seeing a regression. We're seeing more veils. We're seeing less uh, women uh, in, in the public place. We're, we're seeing uh, more repression of women as, as uh, radicalisation increases and spreads. Elizabeth, running a little short of time, uh, just in the lead-up to news, uh, the Pakistani Taliban's attempted assassination of the young Malala Yousafzai back in 2012, that drew a lot of attention. Uh, to the plight of girls in Islamic nations. Do you think that since that time there's been any sort of improvement in the status of women in those nations? Uh, no, and I think um, it's very unfortunate, actually, that Mulala was put in front of the cameras just recently to comment on Boko Haram. And she said, uh, I'd say in her ignorance of Boko Haram and even possibly of uh, of Islam, even though she is a Muslim and was raised in a Muslim community, she said this has nothing to do with Islam. And of course it does. As we've just been saying, it has everything to do with Islam. It has to do with fundamentalist Islam, Salafi Islam, which takes Muslims right back to the Quran and tells them to emulate the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, that's where this comes from. And liberal Muslims Secular Muslims, uh, they, they don't want to, you know, they're, they're appalled by it. And uh, we should be encouraging them to speak up more and we should be helping them find security to speak more and to have more of a voice. Now, just quickly, whenever we talk, I, I always like to draw attention to uh, the websites that you have, and there's a number of them. People can uh, certainly Google Elizabeth Kendall. One of your websites in particular is about giving people uh, information by which they can pray. Uh, just quickly, how do we pray for the circumstance that's going on there in Nigeria? Oh, yes. I, I, to be honest, I have found this one of the most uh, painfully difficult uh, things. You know, how, how do we pray? Um 
We need to pray for the girls themselves, that God will sustain them. It's not going to be easy to get them back. Uh, any rescue attempt will put their lives in danger. Uh, it's true what I've heard being said. Um, any attempt to rescue them uh, will pro- could very well see them killed. Uh, it's too late almost in that sense. We need to pray that God will sustain them and protect their faith and that God himself will intervene to enable their escape or their deliverance. Because, you know, if the military goes in with guns, they'll probably, they could very well all die, and they've been scattered. We need to pray for for God to show his hand here and to support these girls while they're in their captivity. Well, Elizabeth, so good to talk. Uh, Just to point people to uh, the websites, uh, you've not only got your Religious Liberty Monitoring site, uh, there's also uh, the Religious Liberty Prayer Bulletin. Uh, Point people to to your book, Turn Back the Battle. Uh, Elizabeth Kendall, Religious Liberty Analyst, always a pleasure catching up with you and talking through some of these deep issues. I want to thank you so much for being a part of 2020 today. Thank you, Neil. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.